when I, when I talk about like all Australians engaging with Aboriginal culture, it's not just, oh, that's because it's the right thing to do and it's it's righting the wrongs and, you know. Like I've never approached it like that. Aboriginal culture is an incredibly beautiful culture. Welcome to the Neon Grid podcast. I'm your host, Michael Rodriguez. Stories of people and place is my response when asked what sits at the heart of Sydney's 24-hour economy strategy. From Brookvale to Balmain, from Harris Park to Hurstville, Sydney is blessed with a diverse and temperate environment. We've got beaches, mountains, waterways, urban landscapes and everything in between. We're also the second most multicultural city on the planet as waves of migration have brought cultural practice and traditions from all four corners. These colours, these ingredients are a storyteller's dream. But undoubtedly, the most unique part of Sydney's identity is Eora, the 29 clans whose land on which many of us live, work and play, bounded by those three mighty rivers, the Hawkesbury to the north, the Nepean to the west, and the Georges to the south. As we go about our work delivering on the strategy, I'm often struck by the disproportionate impact the built environment has on our storytelling mission. Done well, architectural icons and considered development can enable our engagement with place and add to that storytelling tradition. But the built environment is, in relative terms, a recent adornment to a multi-millennia old place. So much of our Aboriginal heritage is well, at least to my untrained eye, obscured from view. How do we uncover, go deeper, engage with our history and ensure that it takes pride of place in Sydney's story we stood proudly for residents and visitors to our city to embrace, to respect, to honour and to share. Joining me today on the Neon Grid podcast is Alison Page, a award-winning designer, film producer, author and now adjunct associate at the University of Technology's Design School. I want to chat to Alison about Aboriginal storytelling here in Eora and in particular the role of the modern built environment. I'm keen to pick her brain about how the 24-hour economy strategy for Sydney can facilitate that storytelling. If this topic piques your interest, be sure to check out Alison's book, which she co-authored with Professor Paul Mehmet. It's called Design, Building on Country. But for now, I hope you enjoy my interview with the one, the only, Alison Page. Alison Page, it took us a while to finally connect, uh, and uh, I'm very pleased to see you over a virtual format today, but I'll be even more pleased when we can meet in person. Welcome to the Neon Grid Podcast. Thanks for having me. We are going to cover a few things today, and I want to touch on our, our first meeting um, and, and in person, which was <laughs> has left an indelible imprint on my mind about uh, you know the place of I guess First Nations Aboriginal culture, um, you know, you know the storytelling of Sydney, and then, um, but also you know a bit about your professional work, if you want to call it that these days, and the impact and influence that it may be having may in the future have. But in, in, in terms of your, um, you, you know, your story, do you want to just kind of tell us about your own background? And, and, and please, um, in terms of uh, my notes, tell me uh, your lineage is Walbunga and Wadi Wadi people of the Yuan Nation. Is that correct? You did all right. You did all right yeah. there. And, and I think it's right that I, I acknowledge I'm on, on Gadigal land in this instance um, and pay my respects to elders past and present. And I you know, feel very privileged to be in your company now. So, yeah, tell us about you. Yeah, I, you're, you're sitting in my country. I'm sitting up in Coffs Harbour in Gumbangi land, which is kind of where I've spent the last 20 years. I, I'm from La Perouse in Sydney, so 
so the the heartland of the NRL, <laughs> which is a great place for an artist to grow up <laughs> and not be sporty at all until roller skating is recognised as a serious sport. I'll never be a sports person, Mike. Oh, well, we, we, let's see what we can do. I don't know we'll solve this one on the podcast. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Lapa and I have five sisters so, and we're sort of all artistic, really. We're all creatives. Um, so we can tell you exactly the fastest way to get from Redfern Oval to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, <laughs> Which and, you, that, <laughs> and, and what is that, by the way? How would you how would you recommend that? That's, that's, Sydney's that's great. Tell. Sydney's a great city to walk around because it's all based on the original walking tracks. So all of the roads go along ridges and, you know, I used to live in King's Cross and work in Central, so um, used to just walk across that ridge and down down over that saddle to Central. It's so fast, so good. Not a great city to drive around, but a great city to walk around. Well, well happily, I think uh, the pandemic's sport, you know, spurred more of us into active transport these days and getting <laughs> yeah. fresh air uh, along those those well beaten tracks, I guess. Um, and so, in, in terms of um, you, you, you're mentioning, I guess, your LARPA uh, upbringing uh, uh, yeah. and, and, and artist creativity, and I guess uh, you, you know that 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 took you in different directions throughout your career, if I can call it that. I don't know if career is a great word to describe it, though. But like your life's journey, shall we say? Yeah, well, I just never. I mean, it's interesting. I I got into interior design because I was one of those kids that was always fixing up the house, you know. And even though I sort of grew up in Hauso, and you know, had <laughs> sort of a pretty crappy house, we, my sisters and I, were really avid op shoppers, and so we had a really. I think we developed our eye for design and good design shopping for clothes and nice things for the house kind of thing, and. I got into interiors. I won a Lego competition. That was a huge part of why I got into design. Oh, I even found out about design. I mean, you know, it was, it's not like kids from poor upbringings go, I'm going to be an interior designer. <laughs> and, and, and interestingly, I, I did go and study uh, interiors at UTS and you know but by my third year I really was I had this major sort of depression because I thought oh my gosh I'm gonna just be designing restaurants and bars for you know hedonistic culture you know and everything there wasn't sort of sustainable design back then so I mean interiors particularly were being kind of ripped out every five years the mdf was kind of everywhere which is a really toxic sort of substance so just everywhere so you know by the end of third year and you know looking at my hex statement i sort of thought i'd made a dreadful mistake and then this great thing happened to me i had this lecturer that was head of interiors at the time george vergis who's from canada and he said oh but you know, have you ever thought about looking into Aboriginal architecture? And I think, you know, I tell this story many times, but hearing those two words together, it was kind of like the world completely expanded right at that point. And that led me on a path to meeting Douglas Cardinal, who's a First Nations architect from Canada. And then I met Kevin O'Brien and Dylan Combermary, who were working at the government architect's office. And yeah, once I'd forced my way into a job 
with them. Yeah, look, the rest has, you know, has been this really amazing kind of journey that I would never have, I would never have really thought it possible that I could put my culture and this this industry that was so far removed, I think, from like from a values point of view, it together, you know, I really didn't think that the building industry, construction, interior design, these things that I associated with you know, rich people, I just didn't think that they could live together um, as, as meaningfully as they have for me in the last 22 years. Do you see that as a part of a, of a, a journey that we're on, though? I, I guess what, um, you know, one of the amongst many things that prompted me to, to invite you on was uh, I look at the role that has been entrusted to me uh, as kind of a storytelling role for Greater Sydney in the first instance. And then I, I find myself thinking about is it, and this is a bit semantic, but as a former publisher, I draw a distinction. And I think of myself more as a publisher, as in I don't tell the stories, but can I create a platform for storytelling and then invite other people to tell the story? What are, what are stories of culture then becomes a question of people in place. And I find one of the challenges is the impact of the built environment on storytelling, in that once it's built, it, it, it sort of sets the landscape or, or some hard parameters, if that makes sense, for for the story that can be told. And and I find, and like, you're a very straight um, talking person. I like to think of myself that. I, like, I, I really think that there's a, uh, and it's, you know, this is sort of just NIDOC week almost timing this podcast, which is happen chance. But we're at this point where we there's increasing recognition, as late as that's come, but how, how do we really elevate th- those stories particularly of Aboriginal people in Sydney, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders more generally, in the context of a, of a land that's been built over, it, it sometimes I find it a bit challenging. Well, that's right because, well, for, for 250 years the built environment has been weaponised really as a way of, I think, muffling the voice of country or the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people if you look at something, a place like Tubagali, for instance, which is the site where the Sydney Opera House is now, that place, that that word Tubagali means place where the knowledge waters meet. So that that is a place where the tank stream flowed out into uh, Warani, which is Circular Key. So the fresh water and the salt water were mixing there. Very high nutrient kind of waters where there would have been a lot of fish so the shell middens that were found on that site were 12 meters high so they're just absolutely massive so when the first fleet rolled in you know for thousands of years people would have just sat there and danced and sang and ate food and told countless stories over you know around campfires which is kind of interesting to think about that's kind of what we do on that site right now right with the opera house but but the first thing that they kind of did was rename it. So they put cattle on it and then they renamed it Cattle Point. <laughs> and then they, I think, realised that those shells were a really great resource for making concrete uh, or making some, you know, making the foundations of the original buildings that came along after that on Macquarie Street and the first government house where the Museum of Sydney is now. So they called it Lime Burners Point. And then after the kind of Macquarie had the bromance happening with with Benalong, they put a house on there for him. So then they called it Benalong Point. 
but you know back to the back to those back to the buildings on Macquarie Street they're literally using the the remnants of all of those countless stories and and campfires and knowledges that were shared as the foundation to build buildings that are from another place. So, you know, like let's get buildings from England and just transplant them here with no, it's not even about just the voices of Aboriginal people. This is about the voice of country. Like there's no consideration for the wind direction, the sun, nothing like that. They just wanted to recreate this kind of hyper-real sort of landscape that looked like England, you know, in this offshore detention centre that they built here. You know what I mean? Like it's cooked. And so the built environment, I think everything that we're doing now in terms of integrating country into the built environment or seeing country as an extension of the natural environment and how Aboriginal people view the natural environment is about, I think, de-weaponising it or, or, or actually just seeing design as an act of power, seeing architecture as an act of power in the sense that it can amplify voices instead of just muffling them out. Can I um, just interrogate this a bit further in the sense that and I've got over my fear of saying the wrong thing, right? Like, So I'll say that one of the common questions I'm asked now in my role a bit increasingly is, you know, acknowledgements of country and people are getting over there firstly their fear of doing it and then it moves through this cycle where people are then slightly uncomfortable because it becomes a perfunctory component to any uh, engagement you know and then is it meaningless or is it meaningful etc and what i've seen in in the last um, three months is also is a real acceleration in that beginning of a ritual for whatever that is and it, you know more emphasis um being uh, directed to firstly turning from acknowledgement to welcomes and making sure that you you do that and then uh, or give a platform for that. But where I'm going with this is that that's a kind of thing that you can do almost as a event. I'm probably picking the wrong word here, but right, like I can pick that up and put that in in a sense, right? But with the built environment, like the lead time is 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 somewhat longer in the mm-hmm. sense that like you know you've got a, you know the existing built environment you've got new things that you're working on how rapidly and i don't know whether speed is the right measure but how visible can we expect that to be it's a good question i mean i make a lot of comparisons with this sustainability in um, environmental sustainability in architecture so in the late 90s, that just became a bit of an early conversation. It was a dialogue. People kind of referred to it. They, it started to, there started to be some people who could understand it and even interpret it in the built environment. Now I look back at that and, and it's interesting to me how the built, I think architecture and the construction industry is leading the way in terms of sustainability and, in, and really you know, they're talking about opening up drains in cities now and reinstating the rivers. You know, so the tank stream that we just spoke about, that's in a drain. It's been incarcerated into a drain and it's underneath Pitt Street and, look, one day we might release it again and actually have a river running through that street. Um, that's where the sustainability kind of, you know, movement is is thinking and I I just have to sort of be a prisoner of hope and say, well, 
I hope that the black design movement, which is very related to the sustainability movement, of course, but I hope that 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 it progresses as advanced as that is and maybe even in a um, a shorter time frame because a big part of what Aboriginal design is about is about sustainability. Mm-hmm. But engaging people in this kind of meaningful connection to, to place and instilling within them through that ritual that you talk about, through that dialogue and that relationship that you talk about, you know, there's ways... Aboriginal cultural practices, including rituals and ceremonies like welcomes, are a really great way to fast track that connection to country so that you have this compulsion to care for it, that you want it's your homelands and so you must care for it. And I, I think, um, and maybe uh, without being an expert in, in the areas that you're talking about, um, you know, sustainability and I guess it's that amplification of two two things at a time which might create a, a more momentum, say. But I guess you're always then faced with the question of what is the right approach to it and let's not have a false start. And I guess where I'm going with this is in particularly around, I think you used the word there, black design, did you? Sorry, I yeah. can't. Yeah. How do we have people of your calibre, ilk, and command of the issues lead that process. Um, And I think that, and I would have mentioned this in the intro, I think your Design on Country was a book that um, I'm I'm midway through reading, I think is, you know, one source of information, I guess. Um, But do you feel that we've got the right leadership? Is that the right word to use as well? Yeah. Yeah, look, there's not many Aboriginal practitioners in architecture and design. It's just a reality. And it's been that reality for a really long time. We all know each other. We are encouraging young people to study it. I think at the moment, you know, and and, and I'll park that, the solution to that problem aside, because I do have one. <laughs> but, well, 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 I'll get that out of you before this podcast. Yeah, you will. <laughs> You will, but but I think we need to be put in as, and this is what's happening on a lot of projects now, is that we're being put on as design directors or we're leading projects. So it's not just, oh, here's an architectural team delivering quite a big infrastructure project. Here's an Aboriginal sub-consultant. That's not, I think that does happen. Look, I'm not going to lie, and I think that this is the reality, is that we can't be afraid to just push on because like with sustainability, you know, there'll be there, there was always that spectrum of people who were just ticking a box and doing it because it was a regulation, but their heart wasn't in it. But now I think that, you know, what's been demonstrated to the market is that there is value. Um, the people who are buying these apartments or, you know, living in these neighbourhoods do want sustainable, sustainable places. And so... Uh, the landowners are onto that now and they lead with that. And I think that that's what will happen in this in this instance. What I'm finding with designing with country on a lot of teams that I'm on now is that we're using the framework of connecting with country to define the narrative of the project and the values of the project, and which is why it's not something that you can just subcontract out like every member of the team and these are massive teams some of these teams are 30 40 people they all have to be singing from the same song sheet they have to be across this cultural narrative and 
you know, really buying into these these values of the project for it to work and for it to have meaning. A, a couple of quick questions. The connecting with country framework, um, excuse my ignorance, is that something that people can look up or is that a, a generic reference you've made there? Yeah, so Dylan Combermary, who I worked with at the Government Architect's Office 22 years ago, he stayed there. Kevin and I went off and did our own practice, but he stayed. And one of the achievements he's been able to kind of get across the line is, is developing this regulation that all developments in New South Wales have to have a connecting with country framework in order for the planning permissions to be approved. So that's massive because I think without that regulation, I'm not sure we'd see this sort of acceleration that we're seeing now. But of course, that does come at a cost because the industry is, there's not, there's actually not enough practitioners, that's the honest truth, uh, for it to be done perfectly every time. And you mentioned, and I, as a hard-hitting ex-journalist that I am, <laughs> is going to push you on your solution there. Is is it partly around, I'm going, to, I'm going to throw down a hazardous guess, which I'll be a car, car crash on, but like I'm kind of conscious of, um, you know, in other areas of education, this uh, idea of not micro-credentialing as such, that's one of those buzzwords flying around at the moment, but it's a bit like lifelong education and so forth and that we, we had, and I came up and I'm not going to hazard a guess as to age, but, you know, let's say I was educated in the 90s, graduated 2000-ish, but it's a very vocational-led thing. You can't be an engineer until you've done all this stuff. You can't be a lawyer until you've done all this stuff in my case. But, you know, is there an element where you can kind of accelerate people through a bit and not necessarily like wait for the piece of paper at the end and and thereby, you know, empower a greater number of people? Is that kind of where your head's at or? It's more about, I think, educating the Aboriginal community to get their head around this thing called design and architecture because we're just going to have to. So if we, if Aboriginal people, so we didn't have, Aboriginal people didn't have the written word. So how we remembered the vast amounts of cultural and ecological data that we needed to survive was that we wrote it into geographic locations through storytelling. So we'd, we'd have a piece of information about fishing or a piece of information about hunting. It would be, there would be this fictional story told and that story would be embedded into these physical locations. It would also be written into song, dance, decoration that would go on the body through ochre so that as you walked through country over time repeatedly and you walked past that place, that data would come back to you. You would remember it. So it was a mnemonic system of learning that involved everything around you in terms of your three-dimensional environment, including the material world. So when you start to bring man-made objects into that system of learning, which is song lines essentially, then that those objects and those things that you create also become these opportunities for you to record the library of the dreaming, to upload and download that information as you needed it, which you really needed it, right? So, and look, other cultures have these memory palaces, I think they call them in Turkish culture, there are other cultures that use this mnemonic system. And so if we're saying that 
that is the definition of country. That country is a physical place, but it also contains this story element, which is contains all of our traditional knowledges and science and artistic practice, cultural practice, social mores. Everything is all written into into the land then, of course, we've got to see the built environment as an extension of country. And so if we want Aboriginal people to be the authors or the co-authors of those stories, as we bring more and more and more material items into that world, then we're just going to have to train them up. And so my solution, you ready? Drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've actually just come on as an associate dean at UTS in the in the design architecture and building faculty to start a centre of, of designing with country so that we can not only sort of offer short courses to communities who might be being asked for the first time to consult on massive infrastructure projects and they're hearing a whole new language, they're seeing drawings they don't understand, they're dealing with time frames that go against everything their culture <laughs> is espousing, like come in and do a short course just to kind of help you with that. Offering courses, I think, to corporates who might want to look at a new opportunity, a new project or a new idea and workshop it over five days or 10 days through an Indigenous lens right through to, you know, actually undergraduate courses where we're going to train up more architects and designers and practitioners because, frankly, that's what we need because you want the the value of how can you teach a lifetime of cultural knowledge and traditional knowledges that have been passed on from generation to generation over thousands of years. It's not really something that you're going to get ever competency in Although in saying that, I do think that there are a whole host of non-Indigenous architects and practitioners that do get it and they do create space within their practice and the way they run projects for that conversation to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I suppose it's like leveraging of that, the coalition of the willing, as in many other instances where with a bit of your contribution as you've articulated there you can take advantage of the other skills that people have whether they're indigenous or not I suppose and is that a relatively recent appointment is that published or is that like I'm excuse my ignorance in not knowing that but congratulations the things and 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 when can we sign up for these courses it's okay I've got about 28 followers on my Instagram so (laughs) I don't think anyone's heard about it (laughs) yeah no it's really recent so it's only been in the last month or so and it's really come out of, I, you know, it was lovely for me to go back to UTS and kind of finish, you know, also considering I was so depressed when I studied there. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great to come back and create, I think, a school within the faculty that, or a design lab, really. I'd like to call it that because I want it to be really active in terms of how it is using designing with country in the real world with real projects and giving students, I think, especially Aboriginal students, you know, like the ideal student really is like, sure, we want young, fresh, 
straight out of high school Aboriginal students, but also middle-aged women who have got so much cultural knowledge and so much experience. We can teach you that kind of design technical sort of skill, but really it's all of these projects are really needing that kind of rich history and that knowledge and that experience. And also I think this is where we're going to start to see really socially responsible design as well because we'll start to pull designers from parts of society that designers never engaged with really. I mean, people from Hauser, they don't go, I'm going to be an interior designer, I'm going to be an architect. They just don't. I want to ask um, in the context of that question I started earlier, which led us to this point, are there examples in the visible, say, the Sydney siders of, of what, good looks like, um, you know, in terms of how country is integrated into the modern built environment, if I can put it that way? Look, I reckon we're probably going to start to see some pretty amazing projects come to life in the next five years, because I know of a lot of projects in the planning right now that are just going to blow people away. It's one of those things where there's a few little kind of gems. And look, I know that Barangaroo development didn't start out as a designing with country project as such in terms of, you know, they didn't fully engage with community in the first instance, but it's an act of will to take a concrete slab and rebuild what was there before. I mean, I look at that project and I think, wow, you know, it used to be the highest point in the harbour for surveillance, the deepest part of the harbour for fishing. I mean, people were camping there for thousands and thousands of years. And so then the maritime industry moves in and over time just bulldozes the place into submission, you know, blows it up. You know, and there's so many sites around Australia where headlands have been blown up, like they've been blown up and they're gone. And so for someone, for the state government to turn around in 2006 and have this plan to reinstate the original shoreline and to reinstate the headland, albeit with this underbelly underneath, which has become one of Sydney's favourite cultural spaces, I think is a really big part of rematriating country and reconnecting with culture. And I think uh, in the pregame, we were talking a little bit about the importance of symbols or like examples or however you want to put it. But do you want to just comment a bit about the return of Memel or Goat Island, I suppose, like to Indigenous ownership? Maybe it's not exactly a great example, like in terms of the built environment, but in terms of like what its impact now is at where we are and, you know, any other examples like that that can kind of be catalysts for change? I think the rematriation of country in terms of its return to traditional owners is really super important because I think it's going to be critical in terms of us getting out of this uh, environmental predicament that we've found ourselves in. You know, we need to hand country back to traditional owners so that they can look after it because that's, I think, critical to all of our survival. So I think the return of country, especially in city areas like this, and the harbour is really interesting too because in Sydney there is this 
I think, renaissance in a weird sort of a way or a, a reclamation of Sydney by its traditional owners. So there's really interesting kind of work being done there about people linking themselves back to ancestors who were recorded on Sydney Harbour in 1790 and things like that, which I think has been a long time coming. So that, and I think as you as you get these massive metropolises, we can't let it run away from us so much like in North America where there's just no voice for, for Indigenous people there at all. It's almost too far gone. And all of their rights are just being wound back at a million miles an hour. I think we've got this chance in Australia to actually right the wrongs. Yes, it's stolen land. But I think there's a way, I think, where we can almost stand back on the beach with Captain Cook and kind of have a dialogue whereby we design an Australia moving forward where there is a greater ownership and custodianship by Aboriginal people. I just want to throw a few random things at you. Like just work in your own um, portfolio and some of it I appreciate might be confidential or may may not be seeing yet the light of day in a, in a visible sense, but is there things that you're proud that of, of being associated or working on or have worked with other people um, that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, like this year's been a cracker. I'm working on the Bay's West development, which is over in White Bay, which was a former coal power station that's being converted now into a beautiful public space and a beautiful development. What was really good about that was that we came up with this kind of idea of creating a water song line. So, okay, so saying, again, if knowledge is the power of the future, how can we create a library out of this site? So looking at the old building that the power station's in, that can be a library with books in it. But then seeing the rest of the site, the public realm, as this opportunity to create a song line um, about water country and sea country where every day when people go on their morning walk, they will be able to discover things, learn things because of the landscaping, the architecture, all of the built and the grown elements and maybe even digital elements will speak to them and teach them things about that country. And plus we're using the site itself. We're going to be able to bring the water in from the harbour and filter it through salt marsh gardens. So we're actually cleaning the harbour and creating little motels for the endangered seahorses that are in there as well. So, you know, that's, I think, an example of how you can look at a development like like Bay's West and bring some depth and meaning and storytelling and connection to country to it. The other thing I've just done is has been like a huge, like it was a project that I had has its origins 16 years ago. Um, I was at a wedding and I had a conversation with the head designer for Breville and we were just talking because we're both designers. And I said, hey, you know, you should really do a range of Aboriginal products, you know, like coffee machines and kettles and stuff. And we were talking about, I oh, imagine if you, every day when you went into your kitchen, you know, this, the library of the dreaming was there, you know, you sort of wrap these appliances with country and it speaks to you, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, nothing happened. 
But then <laughs> 13 years later, so three years ago, the same guy, <laughs> Richard Hoare, rings me and says, hey, remember that conversation we were having? And, yeah, so what was really, yeah, this year, um, in just May this year, we launched the Aboriginal Culinary Journey, which is a project where we've had four artists, um, Lucy Simpson, who lives in Sydney. Um, she's a Yawalaray woman um, from out at Lightning Ridge, amazing designer, and three artists who are part of the Pintupi Nine who walked out of the desert in 1984 and saw White Man for the first time. They are the other three artists and we've created a range of six appliances that are about to travel the world and oh. take and be the voice for country, I think, globally, which would be unreal. That's the two, two amazing examples. Uh, very, very exciting. All right, here's, uh, you, you got any advice for me in my role and what I'm trying to do? You want to share? <laughs> You're going to spare a couple of days. <laughs> oh, well, you know, get, 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 yeah, well, absolutely. I'll come up and visit you. Look, I think the when I, when I talk about like all Australians engaging with Aboriginal culture, it's not just, oh, that's because it's the right thing to do and it's it's righting the wrongs and, you know, like I've never approached it like that. Aboriginal culture is an incredibly beautiful culture. Like what we did traditionally, so say in a city like Sydney, we worked about 7 to 14 hours a week, which was ironically boating, camping, fishing. So the thing that everybody in Australia does on the weekend boating, camping, fishing, Aboriginal people did that as a job. And then the rest of the time they just spent making art and engaging in culture and ceremony and dance and song and hanging out with their families and having a pretty good time in a pretty temperate sort of climate and living a sustainable existence as well. And I think all Australians whilst we were sort of called savages, I mean, I think we know now that that's actually probably quite an advanced way to kind of look at culture and look at the way that we kind of go about our day-to-day existence. I mean, so much of our existence as Australians and as anyone who is engaged in a Western sort of capitalist system, you know, we have to do so much stuff that's just a waste of time and is tedious and boring, And so I I would just hope that coming out of COVID, there's this kind of opportunity to reevaluate everything and the way that we design our society and the way that not just our places and our physical things, but the whole way we design our life and our way of, of living. So, I mean, Mike, you're in the business of culture and you're in the business of you know, even this whole idea of looking at a 24-hour economy, I mean, what a ridiculous idea that it was It was sort of fixed into 9 to 5 or 9 to 9 or 9 to 12 anyway. I mean, it's it's kind of time that we sort of reevaluate things and say, okay, we're allowed to be critical of all culture and we're living a culture whether we are purposeful about it or not. And I think what's great about a lot of Indigenous cultures and just a lot of other cultures generally is that they're in control of where their culture's headed, what it's about, where it's come from and where it's headed, where I just feel like 
with Western culture, it's kind of like this organic fungus that's just kind of growing out of control and no one's no one's at the driver's wheel. Yeah, for me, listening to that underscores the sort of overall conversation we're having and, and around recognition in the first place and then at that reimagined joining up, as you described, of whether through the built environment, whether through artistic practice or cultural expression, where the stories of our, our First Nations people just have got to be brought into the pr- correct proportion. I feel like that is the zeitgeist and, and very helpful for me to have you you on on this podcast as a mentoring session almost, you know, uh, mean it to kind of explore these ideas and, and think about them and circle back, hopefully through lived experience and um, concrete examples, or maybe not concrete, maybe we'll find some other products. But, you know, yeah, 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 Glass the reinforced concrete yeah. example. <laughs> um, I, I feel like um, that, that was going to be my last question. Uh, in terms of opportunities coming out of the pandemic, but uh, uh, do you feel like you've answered? I think you may have, but is there, is there anything else that touches, that grabs you at the moment to think about opportunities coming out of the pandemic? I think if people are obviously wanting to reconnect more with nature. They're wanting to reconnect more with their families. So, I mean, I think they're already really open and receptive to conversations with, with other cultures who have that. And that's where I just sort of think this, kind of come to Jesus moment with all industries, whether you're an accounting firm, you know, what does it mean for your your accounting firm to kind of have family-friendly values and values where you do allow people to kind of connect with nature more? I mean, look at the exodus out of the cities and into the regional areas. I think that says quite a lot about what people's priorities are and how they're reevaluating them. But I think that that should be a little bit of a wake-up call for a lot of leaders to kind of say, okay, well, how can we lead with these values now? Well, Alison, I really appreciate your time uh, this afternoon. And uh, what I am looking forward to is is this conversation carrying on. And uh, you, you better believe I, I, if, you, if you need any help throwing any parties for uh, your new new school at UTS, please let me know. And we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be in there and we'll party all night and every yeah, day. Yeah, exactly, at three in the morning. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, on that note, Alison Page, thanks for being a guest on the Neon Grid podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Neon Grid podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. To get involved with our efforts to reimagine Sydney's 24-hour economy, sign up to the Neon Grid newsletter. You'll find that on the Investment New South Wales website, which is at investment.nsw.gov.au. Or hit the link in the show notes. You can also follow me, your host, Michael Rodriguez, on LinkedIn. And as always, carpe noctum.